I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 22, Matthew 22, and we're continuing our studies in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, it's always good to have your Bible with you, always good to open it up, always good to check that what I'm saying is right, and it's what the Bible says, so we mustn't be sloppy in these kind of things, but let's be diligent. And uh, I want to read a, a verse that's, verses that will be well known to, to many of us, verses 34 to 40. So Matthew 22, verse 34. Let's pray before we, uh, we read. Father, as we come to your words, uh, open our hearts to receive it, we pray. Uh, come tenderly to us and speak uh, those words of love to us and help us to respond accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah. So Jesus has just uh, answered some Sadducees in the previous section, and verse 34 says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, And with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Well, over the last few weeks we've had, as it were, a a sort of ringside seat Uh, watching this uh, kind of sparring match that's been going on between Jesus and various groups that have come to him with questions. And uh, those questions have come to him, uh, not because those people want to learn from Jesus, uh, as we have seen already. Uh, They are trying to find ways to justify arresting him and, and getting rid of him, if probably bringing him to trial. And in the end, they'll get what they want. They will crucify Jesus at the end of this week. uh, This week in which Jesus is. Uh, We're going through slowly this chapter, this this, uh, account. But from the beginning of chapter 21, uh, Jesus has been in Jerusalem for the last time. And it's the the last week of his life. Uh, We're taking a number number of weeks to look at it, but you should should compress that timeline in your own thinking. Things are happening very quickly here. And recently we've we've seen three different kinds of questions that uh, Jesus has been asked. Uh, Firstly, there were questions about uh, taxes. Uh, And that's a kind of political question. How do you relate to the state? Um, How are you going to relate to Caesar? And then there were questions last time we looked at it um, about the resurrection uh, from the Sadducees. The Sadducees, of course, didn't believe in the resurrection, but they were asking about the resurrection because they thought they had a kind of uh, a reductio ad absurdum. They can get to a stupid answer and, and show, therefore, that re- resurrection is, is therefore a wrong doctrine. But it's a theological question. So a political question, theological question. And now we've got a question from a lawyer, um, a scribe, and uh, somebody who is a, a student of the Old Testament, uh, who knows the Old Testament well, and what he's got a question about is a Bible knowledge question. Um, 
And it's a question that's, uh, that's much, that was much debated and discussed amongst the scholars. Which is the greatest commandment in the whole of the Bible? I wonder what you would answer to that. I know we just read it and you probably got the right answer now. But uh, I wonder what you would have answered that uh, uh, to that question. But Jesus then answers it very directly. Um, and actually... It probably wasn't a particularly difficult question for a first century Jew because every, every Jew would learn from an early age to, to quote these following verses from Deuteronomy chapter 6 uh, where verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your, ma- your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And so... The, the Jews, uh, from the very earliest age, they would learn that verse. The great Shema. Hear. Hear, O Israel. And uh, they are to hear this great commandment. And so, uh, and then Jesus adds a second commandment to it in verse 39. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he concludes in verse 40. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, Matthew doesn't record the response of this lawyer to Jesus, uh, although Mark does. And uh, Mark says, you're right, uh, teacher. Uh, So he gets a, a word of affirmation. Jesus gets a word of affirmation from this lawyer. You've answered well. You've spoken well. Um, A good and acceptable answer. Very direct this time. However, though this lawyer may approve of the answer that Jesus gives, as you know, I hope you know, it's not simply enough to be able to quote the Bible, to get to the heart of a a verse in the Bible, or to get to the truth of a verse in the Bible. You see, these were men who knew the verses. But they didn't properly interpret them. We've seen this already. Uh, Jesus said to the the Pharisees earlier, you are wrong because you do not know the scriptures. Although they were quoting from the scriptures. You're wrong because you don't know the scriptures. And so we need to understand, and and this lawyer needed to understand, what does the Bible mean by love at this point? What does Jesus mean by love? You shall love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We need to understand what this love is. And we live in a world where love is completely distorted. It's almost universally associated with feelings. How do I feel? Do I feel love? Do I feel loving towards people? And if I do, then that's me loving them. And, uh, but the trouble with that is if you are just driven by your feelings then of course it can go in all kinds of directions and there are many directions you can go in that take you away from God and from his words and so the, no, though you may feel love you may have a disordered love and so it's very important we understand what the Bible means by love and so there's a number of things to, to say about the way that Jesus quotes the Bible here. About this love. 
And that's what I want to look at with you this morning. And the first thing to say is that this is a love that can be commanded. It's not actually describing a feeling at all. And that command is not to do something with a feeling you already have. It is a command to love. And so, for the modern mind, you might ask the question, well, how can somebody, how can you command somebody to love? Surely I've got to to feel something. Surely I've got to have a, a feeling of love before I can actually love someone. And so to the modern mind, therefore, it sounds nonsensical. Maybe to you this morning, it sounds nonsensical. I've got to kind of like the people before I can love people. But the biblical view of love um, isn't actually about how you feel at all. It may involve your feelings, but it's not about your feelings. The biblical view of love is about how you live towards other people. How you act towards other people. And the question about that's being raised in this quotation is, is who are you living for? Who are you loving? That's more important than how you feel. Who are you living for? How are you loving that person? See, the default setting for People in this world, a world where people are tainted by sin, is of course that we live for ourselves. And that's our default setting, isn't it? We live for ourselves. We are, if we're driven by our feelings, actually my feelings are the, are the measure by which, uh, if, if my feelings are the measure of my love, and that's what drives me, then at root my love is really about myself and how I feel. I'm really kind of loving myself if I'm driven by my feelings. Because it's me that has those feelings. So in our our lives, the real question is, who am I living for? Not, how do I feel? And for the Christian, the first person we live for is God. In fact, For everybody, it should be God. Because that's what we're made for. But we live for God. We live for Him. God must be first in our lives. He must be first in our thinking. He must be first in setting our priorities. He must be first in our planning. He must be first in our our motivation. What are we going to do for God? How are we going to live towards Him? In any setting that you can think of in your life, you're going to be thinking, how can I live in this situation for God? And that applies to your neighbor as well. How am I going to live for my neighbor? So this is what Jesus is saying. This love is a command and we have to do it. It's a love that can be commanded. Second thing to say is that it's a covenant love. Um, And the thing we need to remember about love between God and his people is that it's always a covenant love. 
In other words, this kind of love is found within the bonds of relationship, covenant relationship with God. And you'll know this as you've studied your Bible, and certainly we've looked at this uh, in, in previous sermons, but you know, th- what kind of God do we have? We have a God who condescends. So if you know your confession of faith, Westminster 7.1, God is one who condescends. He comes down to us. All the way through Scripture, constantly through Scripture, the motion that is in play is that God constantly comes down to his people. He is coming in love towards his people. He always initiates covenant love and brings his covenant love to human beings. All the way from Adam all the way through to the end of history. God comes down. Most clearly seen in Jesus Christ who comes from glory to dwell amongst us. The descent of God amongst us. Emmanuel, God with us. So this is covenant love. And so the relationship that is between God and his people is more like a marriage. It is a bond of commitment to one another. Uh, You see that when you go to a marriage. What do they do? Uh, They make promises to each other. They, in front of other people, with witnesses, and they say, whatever it is, I can't remember, it slipped my mind. What do they say at weddings? You know, promising to love and to cherish and so on. And till death you do part, till the day you die, you're going to love your husband or your wife. And that's a covenant commitment. It's not about your feeling. It's about your commitments to each other. You're entering into this covenant relationship, kind of in a marriage. And that's what we see uh, in the way that God relates to his people. He enters into this covenant bond with his people. So God commits himself to his people, to you, if you're a Christian. And Christians respond, by God's grace, respond and say, we commit ourselves to you, Lord. We enter into this bond together. We see this all over the Bible. You see this, we're looking at Hosea in the evening, and we see this uh, picture of God as the husband, and Israel as the, the wayward wife, and how God woos his wife and pleads with his wife. To come back to the covenant bond. And we see it in, in the New Testament. We see it in Christ. Uh, what, what, what is the relationship between Christ and the church? It's the relationship of betrothal. That Christ has committed himself to the church. And is preparing her and beautifying her. Ready for the, the great wedding. Eschatological wedding at the end of days. Wonderful, wonderful picture. And God, so God says in this covenant, I commit myself to you. I want you to commit yourself to me. And this is where you find true love in covenant fellowship with one another. It's not about your feelings. Your feelings will be up and down and come and go. But it's about your basic commitment to one another. Uh, Now, people talk very loosely about love today in such a way that it falls so far short of this kind of covenant commitment 
marriage, you know, is very much out of fashion, isn't it? Um, people like to live together for a while and then maybe think about getting married, and many people just never quite bother getting around to it. People want relationship without commitment. They want casual relationships that provide fun without strings attached. Friends, I need to say to you, this can happen in spiritual relationships with God. You can say to yourself, I'm friends with God. You can say, I've I've got nothing against God. I've got nothing against Christianity. I'm a friend of God. But there's no commitment there. There's no bond of covenant fellowship with God. And Jesus Christ is not looking for that kind of relationship with you. Where you've got nothing against him and you kind of vaguely believe that he exists. That's not what Christianity is. Jesus wants everything from you. Because he's given everything for his own people. He wants everything from you in return. He offered himself for you. He died in your place if you're a Christian. He suffered for you. He endured for you. And he calls you in return. Give yourself to him. Give yourself to him. Take that covenant commitment seriously. That's what Christianity is. That's what it means to follow Jesus Christ. So, it's a love that can be commanded. It's a love that's a covenant commitment. And thirdly, it's a love that encompasses everything about you. You see, this is how you are to love God. Verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind. What, does that, what do those three things mean? Well, can I just encapsulate it in one single statement? It means everything about you. Everything about you. Heart, soul, and mind cover everything about you that matters. There's nothing about you that happens outwardly or inwardly that does not come under this, these three categories. So it's everything about you. What, what do we mean then? What is the heart? Well, uh, the mod- modern thinking about the heart is that it's the seat of the emotions. So we're not, but I need to say to you, we're not talking about the emotions because the Bible doesn't speak about the heart in that way. The Bible speaks about the heart uh, as being the center of the will. And the place of the inner motivations and desires. It's the thing that motivates you and drives you in a particular direction. And so it's connected with your will. And so it kind of, it's kind of the catch-all term for the inner you. And the inner you is to love God completely. All of it. All of you is to love him completely. What about your soul? Well, your soul is... is It's that part of your being that's to do with your consciousness, your sense of self. Uh, And it is the place where you actually feel things. So that inner consciousness that that you have, that you're you and not him or her, 
Is, is your soul at work? And that is given over to God. That inner sense of yourself given over to God. And then there's the mind. Of course, that's more obvious. It's the, that's the seat of thinking, of intellectual activity, the rational mind. And so even how you think about anything is to be given over to God. So how you think about your work, how you think about your school, how you think about your TV watching, how you think about your hobbies and activities, whatever you do, I don't know. Plenty of good things to do. But all of it given over to God and under God's oversight. Everything about you is done under his, uh, under his eye because you love him more than anything. So this is a love that can be commanded. It's a love that is committed. It's a love that's all-encompassing. Let me just move on now to, to think about a measure by which we know this love is real. And if you look at verse 39, you'll see the he lays out the second commandment. The second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, so the love for the neighbor is, is like the love for God. And it's, the statement has two parts to it. To love your neighbor, and the second part is, as yourself. Now, some people... And I've heard people say this, you know, you can't love your neighbor unless you love yourself. And what they've done is they've subtly separated it into two commands. They've said, I've got to love myself, and on the basis of that, I'm going to love my neighbor. And that's actually not the meaning at all. The, the meaning of this is based on the fact that human beings generally have no problem loving themselves. I, you know, examine your own heart on this. You have no problem looking after yourself and thinking about yourself and what you need and providing for what you need and telling other people what you need. You, know, you, you look after yourself. You have no problem. And it doesn't matter whether you're a, um, an extrovert who thinks a great deal of yourself or a, a supposedly humble person who doesn't think very much of yourself, you actually still think a lot about yourself. And we basically don't have a problem loving ourselves. We prioritize ourselves, me first. But true Christian love, in true Christian love, Self and neighbor swap places. And the measure by which I love my neighbor is how I, I love myself. You see, that sinful instinct to do everything for me first has to be flipped around and apply that attitude I normally apply to myself, apply to my neighbor. And that's, that's not easy. You know, I, you may be sitting there thinking, um, I kind of do that all the time. I'm, I'm basically a loving person. Some of you are. <laughs> but you maybe have a high view of yourself. You know, you think, I, I'm a very loving person. And 
Well, the trouble is that reveals something about you. It actually reveals you don't know very much about yourself. Because you love yourself more than anything else. is your default setting. And I think you can see that. In, if you're a parent, you can see that in your children. Um, you, I, learning about yourself is quite a difficult thing. And you know, when your children are growing up, um, you learn as a parent look, watching your children. We used to say to our daughter when she was growing up, uh, you shouldn't do that, and she wouldn't understand why. And we would say, uh, we know you better than you know yourself. That's not a good idea. And she would get really annoyed at that. (laughs) Because she didn't believe that we would actually know something about her that she didn't know about herself. But that's, that's actually true. We don't know ourselves very well at all. We think we do. We know some of ourselves, but not all of ourselves. We often... We often don't know why we do things. Do you ever find that? Paul says that in Romans chapter 7. The things I do, I do not want to do. We don't know ourselves as well as we think. And so, that's our default view of ourselves. That we, are, that we like to think of ourselves as perfectly loving towards other people. And if that's your view this morning, then I urge you to consider that you have some big blind spots in your life. And I rather suspect that other people do not have that view of you. Um, Not as rosy a view of yourself as you do. So be careful. So these these commands to to love God and love neighbor, I I think are deeply connected to each other. That's why Jesus says that the second is like it. They are deeply connected to each other. Why is that? Well, John picks up. This idea of love. In 1 John chapter 4 verse 18 he says, If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. You see the connection? I love God, but I can't stand all you people here. Um, I love God though, and uh, you people, you're, you're just trouble for me. I can't stand you. I'm going to go somewhere else, but I love God. <laughs> and you go around parading your love for God, but you hate people. You can't stand people. You don't serve people. You don't care about people. Then you're a liar. You don't love God at all. That's what John's saying. It's quite stark, isn't it? And most people separate the two commandments. People talk about how much they like to love God, but don't seem to take much action towards helping other people. Or, Or are unreliable towards other people. But John is pretty clear. You... You don't actually love God at all if you're, that's your attitude. Loving your neighbor properly comes out of a true love for God. And the reverse is true as well. You may have no regard for God at all. And you think of yourself as loving towards others. But whatever you think you're doing for your neighbor, it cannot be true love. It can never be true love. Without being rightly related to God. Well, let me finish. We spent some time examining the nature of this love and that God commands. And we could well ask, how can anybody live like this? Surely it's impossible. The Bible sets a very high standard, doesn't it? For love. And if you're a sinner in a sin-ridden world, you'll think to yourself, how can I possibly live like this? 
And if you're thinking, I can't do it, you'd be right. You can't. You can't do anything about this. See, if I was a preacher who only preached moral lessons to you, said, this is the, these are the right things you should do, and these are some more right things that you should do, and you should get on with it, and we'll just have a checklist, and you know, I'll check up with you every so often. If you're doing these things, you're doing well, and if you're not, you're not doing this well. You know, if I was a moralist like that, that's a caricature, but you know, if I was a moralist, I would have no answers to, for you for that. How can I obey this commandment? My only answer would be try harder. But I'm a gospel preacher. We're gospel people here. We preach the good news of Jesus Christ to people. Good news to sinners, including myself. Even as I stand here, I'm preaching to myself. And there are two answers that need to be given to the despair that you might feel about never being able to keep this commandment. The first is to actually embrace the fact that you you accept that you cannot keep this commandment by yourself. Accept that you're a sinner. See, the the law of God is like a mirror that is held up to us in front of us. And we look at it and we say, what a horrible picture. (laughs) When I look at myself. And fine, well... The first reaction is embrace it. Receive it. Receive that message. Recognize you're a sinner before God. And you cannot do anything in your, in your own strength. But then the second part of the answer is to turn away from that sinful heart and turn to the Jesus Christ who's standing in front of you. You see, this is the lawyer uh, in this story here standing in front of Jesus asking him these questions. And here's the Savior right in front of him. And the answer that is in front of him is the answer to the problem of how to live and how to love. You see, these men asking Jesus the questions were full of themselves and their rightness. And Jesus was an irritant to be removed from that. If we get rid of Jesus, then we can go back to our moralizing. But instead, they need to see him as the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ, the most important man in the universe. That's true for you as well this morning. He is the most important man in the whole universe, Jesus Christ. Only he can help you love God the way he wants to, to be loved. And for that, you need to see the love of Jesus Christ who came to suffer and die for sinners. That's why we're going to take the Lord's Supper in a few moments. Because it proclaims that death of Jesus. And it proclaims the love of God to sinners. So as we turn to Jesus Christ, That we are changed by his grace. If we need to be, we're made into new creatures. And we're restored and renewed if we're already new creatures. Revived. Drawn closer to God. Filled with the heart of love that comes from him. I loved him because he first loved me. See, that's where you see. that's That's how you're able to love. By focusing outwards, looking at him.
seeing his love. And then you respond rightly. Turn to Jesus. Turn to Christ. And obey his commandments. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing passage. Um, Thank you for Jesus, our Lord and Savior. The answer to, to all our dilemmas about obedience and failure. And through him we can love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. Help us with this, we pray. Help us to see Jesus clearly. Help us to come to him if we haven't come to him. And if we have come to him, help us to have our sight renewed and our hearts inflamed all the more with love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.